We've talked to a lot of filmmakers about working during the pandemic. But today we have a filmmaker who worked during the pandemic in extremely unique circumstances and pulled off the kind of movie that's really among the hardest to make. Today, Antoine Fuqua, the legendary filmmaker behind such classics as Training Day, joins us with the star of his recent project, The Guilty, Jake Gyllenhaal. Having Jake and Antoine here to talk about making The Guilty under the crazy set of COVID circumstances they were under and how tricky this movie was to make is really amazing. There's a lot of insights they have into their process, so definitely stay tuned for all of that. You'll want to hear it. And in the second half of this episode, we have writer, director, producer Theodore Melfi. You'll know him from St. Vincent, Hidden Figures, and now The Starling. He combines a sense of humor with a real unique writerly sense of purpose. He talks a lot about where he gets his drive from, how he picks up a new project, what he does when he hits the wall. And he's got a very personal tale to tell in all these stories and why he felt he could tell them. So stick around. Hi, guys. Thank you so much for doing this. No film school. I loved it. <laughs> Did you go to film school, Antoine? No, I didn't. Oh, man, I, I learned. There you I, go. I, I went to New York and worked as a PA and did all the grunt work. You know, I had nice. to learn that way. That's amazing. <laughs> anyway, Jake, did you go to film school of any kind? I mean, I was literally born into film school, man. Yeah. No, not literally film school. I was, I was literally, I was like born in the atrium of an agency. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, you're a West, I, you're, I know you're a West LA guy because I am. So I'm also from this. this I was area. born. I, mean, I grew up in Hollywood. I live in New York now, but yeah, definitely, definitely know. I know that that area like the back of my head. Yeah. Yes. So let's talk about this movie. The thing that jumped out at me immediately is just the daringness to create a story that takes place entirely in an isolated space without a lot of characters to try and find a compelling drama there. You know, the movie that I always think of when I see stuff like that is 12 Angry Men. What did you guys, you know, Jake, obviously, you know, you saw the original, you wanted to remake it. You brought Antoine in at some point. There's something bold about doing it this way, honestly. People are always looking for bigger, larger scale, you know, like to, to say like, no, we're going to create compelling tension with one guy on a phone. <laughs> so tell me about that. <laughs> I mean. uh yeah, I think, I mean, Antoine and I often talked about Lumet, like that was, that is within a space, you know, I think, you know, it's very theatrical, you know, it requires a particular kind of skill to do that and a love of that kind of thing, you know, and I think we both have that, him as a filmmaker and just me as an actor and those those references feel, I mean, we're in a, living in a world where every, you're shown everything as an audience and and the kitchen sink in most movies. And I think taking out significant elements and that actually creates tension is something that's needed more and more, even just as an exercise, you know? Absolutely. And that's, I know we both felt that way. Did that sort of strike you as well, Antoine, when you read it? Were we, did you see it as a challenge, a welcome challenge? Or were you like, oh, I can't, I, I want to do this? Or were you like, how are we going to sustain, you know? Uh, I was Standing of it because you know, I, I know Jake's ability, you know, I, I know what Jake can do, and um, I just look at it from an audience point of view. You know, I love movies, so if executed right, then it would, right? It would hold. The script itself felt that way when I read it, 
Gustav's original film certainly had that that quality to it. Naturally, me and Jake wanted to ratchet it up just based on who we are. And because it's in not put in America and California, a whole different character. His behavior is different as well. His, uh, his energy is different. Our system's different. The shift of the story to Los Angeles, to dealing with the LAPD officer, an LAPD officer creates all kinds of different contexts and there's all kinds of history there. Mm-hmm. And it sort of adds layers. So I'm right. curious to hear both of you speak about, you know, if that's one of the motivating factors behind undertaking the project, how it changes your approach, especially now, um, a lot of attention on these subjects. Mm-hmm. Well, for me, it would, when Jake sent me the script, it was written for another city. And when I read it and we started talking about it, it just felt like Los Angeles, you know, for all the things you just said because of the history. And, and it was on fire. <laughs> you know, and we had this conversation about Dante's Inferno. I was just talking about that with Jake. And I was like, yeah, he's like in hell. He's sort of in purgatory. You know how LA yeah. can feel that way, right? And that started to dictate certain things, you know? And that's kind of how we came to that. We're like, yeah, LA, California, it's on fire, right? Yeah. That's the sense of urgency the film should have, you know, to deal with the problems. Was that in Nick's script? Was that in his a draft? Where did how, when did you guys come involved? When did he come involved? And and how did you all collaborate? I guess on that stuff. Well, I mean, I I saw Den Skyledge the first in 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 out of Sundance, and my company got the rights for the movie. Yeah, I started working actually with Gustav on another film that we have in development. Then we started developing this. Nick was the first writer that we went to, and he he wrote the script for us and we developed it for about two years. And then I think, you know, just given the circumstances in the world, I think I didn't realize actually what the undercurrents of the story would start to become. You know, the pandemic hit, we were were developing many different things at my company, but this one sort of started to get in my head, like maybe it's the time for this, even though it would seem like it was the wrong time for it in a lot of ways, just given everything going on in the world. And then also just that movie had just come out in a lot of, but then I thought this story was sort of aching in my bones to be told. And I, I randomly was like, let's send it to Antoine to see if I didn't even think Antoine would be interested. To be honest. I, I thought we passed stuff back and forth between the two of us for the past five years, things have sort of happened that didn't happen. We've gone down paths and never worked to, you know, but we've always wanted to find something. So, you know, I'll like send things to him. He'll send things to me. And, I just, I don't know. I'm not saying I lost faith, but I just thought, you know, maybe it wasn't going to happen. And then he called me the next day and was like, I'm in, I love it. And I think he was feeling similarly to me. And I mean, I don't want to speak on his point of view about it, but I think we talked a lot initially about our broken systems, you know, and our perception of other people. And the fact that you don't see these other characters, you only hear them and what we project on those people and we make judgments and we act a particular way based on our own history or what we've been told or prejudices. And, and all of those ideas felt really important to the two of us to talk about. And like Antoine said, masculinity. I mean, there's a real toxicity to this character from, from the jump, you know, mm-hmm. his behavior, the way he treats people. And so, you know, that was basically Antoine came on and we just rolled. I mean, as soon as he comes on a movie, you know, you know, you're pretty good. You, you're, <laughs> you, options start to open up. So it, it wasn't soon after that we brought it to Netflix and, and we were on our way to making a movie. 
And yeah. you made it, there's, there, you know, you mentioned the pandemic, pandemic impacted production and the mm-hmm. way you approached production and the irony, I guess, that Antoine, right, you were, you were remote for a yeah. lot of it. So this whole thing is like the super remote meta experience. <laughs> Can you Up guys tell right me now. about yeah, and we're still remote. The whole world, yeah, exactly. <laughs> like, uh, but that's in this case, it's a good thing because it makes it more possible. But, <laughs> but that's tell right. me about directing remote. Like, how much did it impact your like working with an actor? And this is such a one-on-one personal thing. The mm-hmm. journey, the, like, and talk about getting under the skin of somebody who has so many intense flaws, like you just mentioned, Jake. Like, <laughs> like the right. two of you working together and and just doing it like via walkie or Zoom. Like, tell me about the process and that and yeah. finding. Well, I mean, you know, the, the only way this would ever, ever work if we had complete trust of each other. Right. Otherwise, there's no way you can do it. I was hardwired to a van outside the studio. Right. About a block away. I had monitors and I had the other actors on Zoom. And I had, I don't know, three or four walkie talkies. I had a spy cam to kind of see the whole set and, what, you know, watch what everybody was doing, you know, and all that. I had my AD on set, you know, and I would communicate with him on things. And me and Jake would talk on Zoom, a walkie, or if it was really private notes, you know, he would walk out and find a safe space and then we would talk on the phone, you know. But what was weird was at first I was really frustrated. I was like, I want to be with, my, you know, my guy. We, we were softball, my DP, my crew. Somewhere in there, I realized because I was stuck in my little van, I was in the same position Jake was in, that Joe was in. I couldn't move. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it connected. Leave the van. <laughs> you start to feel the claustrophobic feeling of that. And this van is nice, man. It's like a jet, this thing, right? But at, at some point, you know, I'm just like, the world's ended, man. I'm in this little thing by myself. And all I have is big, I had a huge monitor of his face. You know? <laughs> it's something it's like about an inner it. space. He was like it an was, inner space. Oh, it was so weird. <laughs> he was piloting you. <laughs> oh, man, it was so bizarre, you know? But there was something about that that was working because I was getting frustrated and because uh, I wanted to be on the set. I could see sometimes Jake would because he was dealing with what we just dealt with where the Zoom would cut off or yeah. stutter and he would have echoes in his ear. We had all the other actors around the world, Australia, New York, you know, L.A., whatever. And uh, I could see them, but he couldn't. Uh, right. So, yeah. Yeah. So it was wild. But when I picked up one was and remember the world is still trapped the height of COVID so when we left the van you had to leave the van and go right into your house he had to leave the set and go right into his house and he was the only one to take his mask off so he was in danger for real so the anxiety that I would have every time I see him do this and we unwrap the plastic earpieces and take the plastic off the floor it was like hold your breath because if he got sick it's a wrap and you don't want him to get sick anyway you know, if I left the van and walked outside and ran into somebody just on the street, I could get sick. It was it was anxiety. But I started okay. to see in his eyes things that were happening. And I was like, I'm not leaving this van. I'm a, it, 11 days is intense. When Jake, when I was able to, to leave the van, it was a moment where I could go on set. I just, I wouldn't leave. Jake said, are you coming on set? I was like, nope, I'm going to stay in this van. Dude. I'm going to ride this out. Because it was working, you know. Yeah. And, Maybe somehow it helped create some of that palpable tension, the dynamic, the the the, the threat. This is when we didn't know a lot about COVID, right? So yeah. it's confusing. And there was no vaccine. 
This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Yeah, Jake, I'm curious to hear you talk about acting via Zoom where you're hearing echoes? That sounds insane to me. Like, how did you do that? Did it, like, you, you hear your own voice? Or you were hearing, yeah, like, what, what, yeah. what, what kind of echoes? Like, in takes? Like, in the middle of takes? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, throughout different versions of it, it was like, initially, in our first day, it was this, like, very faint, delayed sound of my own voice. So, like, no one else could actually really hear it at first. even. Like even our sound guy had to stop, but I was, you know, obviously you sort of know, hear, feel in your body, the timbre of your own voice. So when you hear repeat, you almost think you're, it was, that was the craziest of all. I was like, is that my voice? Like we started to take and I was like, no, it's not, it's fine. It's no, it's fine. Is that my voice? Like, that's what's, is it repeating? And then, then it's just like, and then I kept going, let it go, let it go, let it go. I went like 10 minutes and then I was fine. Like I I literally have to cut that. I would, I'm not an actor would ever do that. I don't ever cut. But I was like, is, this is insanity, you know? And then we had to figure out where it was coming from. And that took a while. And then finally, we couldn't figure it out. So I went, forget it. Let's just, now I'm used to it. Let's just shoot it with it in. And so then we started filming all day with it in. Then I got used to it. Then it stopped. And I was like, oh, well, now this doesn't work. This is weird. Now it, I have no, I want the repeat, you know? I was like, man, wow. you know, things like that happen all the time. Like you're in the middle of a scene with an actor and the rhythm's just off, you know? That's the best part of acting is dictating rhythms with each other, playing, you know, it's like it's, the tennis metaphor is real, you know? Imagine playing tennis like that where you're like a beat behind where you hit the ball. It was just, and it, it was just, it was crazy. But it was, it ended up helping, I guess, you know? Yeah, I wonder if it created something that happened in the character that makes the character and the performance unique. If I'm on the phone and I hear my echo, I suddenly start talking weird i don't know how anybody could pull that off like being aware of their own voice like that like the the focus so i mean you have to trust in the magic of it right you have to trust that if you do feel weird and your voice feels weird and you're feeling strange if it's not right and something really feels technically off but not alive your director is going to say let's cut so i i have to trust that whatever i'm doing or how i'm behaving or whatever i'm responding to is alive enough that he still wants to film it so that, that's what I had to be in was like, just stay in it. Just know, even if you're thrown off that that's where you need to be. And there's something interesting about watching it. <laughs> you know? oh, yeah. yeah. Uh, Antoine, did you, you know, you're watching it and thinking in your mind, how I'm going to cut this thing. You're used to making movies of, of large scale. You've made all kinds of scale. So you have all kinds of tools at your disposal to create bigger, you know, compelling events. And you're just working with an actor in a space. I'm really like, if you could 
explain like what tools you lean on or how you know you know every shot every cut's got to be more impactful right because you're you're so contained how do you approach it and plan uh you know in this case it was really about you know every movie is really about the actor and what's happening in his eyes and and his behavior it really is no matter how big of a scale it is mm. it really comes down to those moments right you can go from a wide shot in Lawrence of Arabia to a big close up of those blue eyes you know but though that you remember that image of those eyes you know you remember that that the shot similar thing here in this small contained space where you trust your actor and you know you, you got to get that performance and work your way out you know cuz that's a lot to ask it's a heavy thing to carry and especially in emotional scenes but and then you know you know in editing i I designed it a certain way so it had a certain rhythm. And then you get into the editing bay and you get it, you find a new rhythm, you know, as well. You discover things and stuff like that, being open to that. It was designed a particular way because when I read the script, it came to me pretty quick. You know, like you read something and you can start seeing it. I can start to see this movie. And the more me and Jake, we talked every night, I could start to see the picture and knowing Jake and how intense he can be. And the, and the fun part for me was that he couldn't move. He was stuck. <laughs> I was like, this is going to be box, great. Like in the last one. <laughs> oh my God. I was like, it's going to be great. I'm just going to torture him. I'm put like three cameras in his face and let him just go. And so sometimes when Jake would, just, I could see when he was getting pissed off, I know him and he would have different voices and the technical things are happening. I just wouldn't cut because I know him and he would stay in it, you know, and that, and I, and I, it was all very usable because that's what was really happening to the character. Mm. So that's the magic that he trusted in, huh? It was <laughs> you real. would torture him. Oh, yeah, it was real. <laughs> You're on a desk job. You can't move, Jake. That would drive him crazy. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> well, I wish I could keep going. I thank you guys, despite thank the you. interruption. Uh, this was great. I really appreciate your time. Thank you, man. Good luck with the man. film. All right, thank you. Take care now. Bye, guys. First of all, thanks so much for being here and taking the time to do this. It's an honor to have you on the show. Big fan of your work. Specifically, I wanted to talk to you about initially how you got started. From what I understand, you did a number of shorts and then eventually that turned into features. But for us, for our audience, always curious to know, you know what the first steps into the field for you were, how you got your career off the ground. Oh yeah, well, the shorts came after much much after I got myself into the business in, in some fashion. So, oh cool. Yeah, the very first thing I did, I came out to Los Angeles 25 years ago and, and I started working in an Italian restaurant, like a little cafe. I was cooking, a small tiny cafe. I was cooking and serving uh, you, you, a place where you cook like a deli, you cook and you serve. You did both. And this guy comes okay. in one day and says uh starts talking to me about a screenplay. And I said, oh, that's a, that's a great idea. I said, you should make that. He said, are you a producer? And I said, yes, I am. I just ask real quick. Do a lot of people ask the people at the Italian delis, like if they're a producer, is that a logical, <laughs> like just an assumption you made? Yeah, it's just, well, everyone in LA is a producer. So like everyone in LA is a producer or a writer or something. And True. He, he knew I was interested in the business, so he, it was a natural question at the time. 
Got and it. I said, you should bring me a script. So he brings me a script to the, to the cafe and I read the script. I said, this is a great script. We should make it. He's like, how do we do that? I go, well, we'll raise some money. I, and come to find out, we both went, we both went to the same college in Missouri. Hmm. And he was eight years older than me, so I, didn't, I never knew him there. And so we went back to his hometown in Missouri, and and where I went to college too. And we raised five hundred thousand dollars from you know a bunch of doctors, lawyers, and dentists, and friends of his and family, and went and made this movie called Park Day, which won the IFP Film of the Year, Best Black Film of the Year, Brock, famous Brock Peters. Ron Canada, Hill Harper, Sidney Tamai Poitier. It was just like a, a just beautiful story about a black family, uh, you know, at a time of celebration in this this holiday called Park Day, which happens in Springfield, Missouri. So my first movie ever wow. I produced. <laughs> like I like I, I just we just did and, and basically I would tell your the people who listen to your podcast is like you I the lesson is a well the lesson is not I don't think lying is a lesson. <laughs> but I <would> say, <laughs> First lesson, lying. Got it. <laughs> I think what the lesson is, although like that's a big thing. <laughs> the lesson isn't to lie. Like, Got it. Although, although that's, that's valid at times and does can be helpful at times. I don't recommend it. And if you do, you know, go and do confession. But anyway, um, <laughs> I think the lesson is to say yes. And that's what I've been doing for the last 20 years is you say yes and you see where that yes leads you because you'll find out in Hollywood and you'll find out all around you know, in your life in general that the world's full of no, right? So yes, I like you, say, that. you say yes to yourself and you say yes to others and you be of service and you lend, lend a hand and you get involved and you do not know how far you can go until you say yes and try, right? And the worst that can happen is you fail. So the first film I ever did, I ended up producing... Then, after that, I said, well, uh, and that, that movie was called Park Day, as I said. And after yeah. that, I said, well, I'm going to direct something. So, because I, I, I just, I saw what happened on that set, and I'm like, well, it doesn't look that hard, right? Did, <laughs> did, did you watch the director? At, did it occur to you on set, like, I want to try that, like you just said? Or did you know going into it, like, I want to keep an eye on this and see how it's done, because no. that's where I really want to be? No. No, what happened was as a producer now I'm on set and I'm watching this happen and um, he, he he would walk around for like an hour trying to figure out what he was going to do, right? Well, how, what he was going to shoot. Like I saw, I finally, I went up to him and I said, listen, man, I go, I don't know anything about directing, but I know that's not right. <laughs> so, <laughs> I, I, I know. So I, I, I told him, I said, yeah, man, I can try to figure it out. And so I said, well, Okay, I'm going to direct. I, 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 if, I, if that's what it is, I'm going to direct. So I went about this book, film directing shot by shot, right? And yeah. I read this. It's a famous book. It's a, it's a yeah. blue, blue bound book. And I read this book and I told my wife, I go, I go, Kim, you know, there's only six fucking shots in the whole world. That's it. The six shots. <laughs> and she's like, really? I'm like, that's it. People think it's a fucking mystery. There's a, there's a wide, there's a medium, there's a close up. There's an over the shoulder, there's an insert, and there's establishing. That's it. And she's like, <laughs> oh my, I saw, so like, how can you, how, well, there's nothing else. Like, there's no other mystery. And so I, I said, I'm going to direct. And I, we you're, really, you're ruining our business model here by. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I'm joking. Yeah. So I, I, uh, I, 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 I studied the book. I own the book. I read the book all the time. I still look at the book. 
to remind myself how very simple filmmaking can be. And it's yeah. not about the shot. It's about what's inside that shot. Yeah. Right. So it takes the pressure off of you as a director to really focus on what's important in the story. And what's important in the story is your actor, your cat, your characters, your actors, what they're going through. That's more compelling than anything. You could have the best shot in the world and nobody cares. Right? You have, on that level, I want to go back and ask a question again about Park Day. But I do want to say on that level, you've worked with some of the best on-screen talent alive in, in the projects you've done between like St. Vincent, the Starling. You have some returning. T- These are just like amazing people. When you're a director, there's like famously kind of two things you're really in charge of or supposed to be. The shot, where the camera is, but also talking to actors is a big one. So yeah. working with this level of talent that you have on these projects, you mm-hmm. know, from Bill Murray, Naomi Watts, Melissa McCarthy, obviously, Kevin Klein. What's it like to talk to those actors and direct them? And well, how? Okay. And do you treat it differently with different actors? How, what's your approach? What's your game plan? Yeah. So look, I'm I'm, I'm kind of dumbing down my career to a to a textbook. But <laughs> yeah, there's a nuance beyond that. There's <laughs> more to the story than that. I don't want to just dumb it down to where everyone gets the book and then thinks they can, you know, whatever. But they can. But I don't want to dumb it down that far. So I then said after before I made the movie I made. I said, I'm going to study actors. And so I spent three years uh, in acting class in Los Angeles where I met my wife. And I spent three years there with Jan Lahante, Larry Moss, Iris Klein, all the, all the legends of, of the time, um, the great acting teachers of the time, with Meisner, with, with uh, Stanislavski Method. And I, I studied it and I studied actors and I, and I acted. And I mm. was on stage. And I was not good, and I put myself <laughs> myself through it. I forced myself to go through it. My ears would get really red, and I'd be a nervous wreck. But I did it, and I did it for three years. And in that doing it, I learned what acting was, how hard it was, how to communicate with an actor, and how to get something from them that's natural. So I did, I did a lot of work. I didn't just read the book. I did a lot of work. You think that that process of discovering that, you know, acting isn't really your thing or, or humiliating, like struggling through doing it helped you understand what they're going through or, or how to work with them? It, it's everything. I think everyone yeah. that wants to direct should take an acting class because yeah, otherwise they're just, they're just talking about theory. Yeah, you're not the first high-level director I've heard say that, so I think it must be true. The the thing I wanted to go back to on Park Day, because I think this is also like a hugely critical step in anyone's processes, you went back to his town and raised half a million dollars. That's an, that's amazing. How do you raise money for a film? What's your advice on that? And how did that how did that project? It sounds like some people he knew, but this is one of the biggest hurdles and stepping stones on any project, right? Yeah. Well, I've, I've raised money for like a lot of movies over the years and it, it never gets easy and um, it's different every time. But like with a movie like Park Day or Winding Roads, the movie that my wife and I made, Kim and I made, you go to the people that... I had a philosophy of going to the people that you know, first of all, and never ask for money that's going to hurt someone. Hmm. So, so we asked, you know, for 10 grand and 15 grand from people who have net worths of like incredible net worth, right? So that's not, that's not going to hurt anyone, 
right? Well, so I never, I never operated in a way that could hurt someone financially because you never know with film. You never know, yeah. especially, with, especially with independent film back then. The, it's different now. It, mm-hmm. It's really, really different now. And it's different now because you can shoot a movie with an iPhone. Like I made a movie, I made a movie called, um, a short film called Daughter for Apple. And we shot it in China and we shot the entire thing on the iPhone 11 Pro. And I, I, I implore you all to watch that and you'll go, oh my God, because it blew me away. Hmm. It blew me away. It's called Daughter. It's one of the shot on iPhone, iPhone films series. And I was like, man. So there's really kind of like, it's a lot easier to make movies now. It's just a lot easier. Like you have your iPhone, everyone has their iPhone or can get an iPhone and you can get two of them and you can get a good little script together and you can go out on a weekend. You know, you can steal shots in subways and, and on boats, you can steal shots in an airplane. You you can't do that with, you couldn't do that back when, when I started, you didn't have the technology to do it, but now you get, you get that iPhone, you get, get the Filmic Pro app, right? Yeah. I was going to ask if you use Filmic Pro, did you use moment lenses? No, we didn't, we didn't augment the lenses at all. Just used the natural, wow. natural, well, cause it was for Apple. Apple didn't want to, uh, oh, got it. Yes. Got it. Manipulate <laughs> the, manipulate the picture. And you know what? Watch the movie and you'll say, I don't need to manipulate the picture. I don't need to. Yeah. This is great, especially because they just released a new one with all these cinematic mode features and this ProRes RAW and stuff. So this is even more true than it was when you made the movie. There you go. There you go. And so you, you, you have so much, you have so much more accessibility to filmmaking than you've ever had before. And everyone can has Final Cut Pro on their computer and you can cut your movie and you can, I, I don't know, it's just different now. So you don't really need to raise a lot of money like you did back in the day because we were shooting on film back in the day, just taking up 50, 75 grand right there, if not more. And now you don't have that problem. So you can make a great, 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 great movie for 20 grand. Yeah. And the, and the crazy part is now there are so many people capable of making things that you have to find what will separate you, right? And that's probably what you said, like what's happening on screen, what the story is that's everything so that's that that's ultimately the only thing that matters that's the ultimate ultimately the only part of the job that that makes makes a difference right so everyone now that everyone can shoot and they've everyone's always been able to shoot but now that everyone can shoot right yeah. why don't we have the next spielberg or scorsese or whatever because it's not about that it's about writing and you have to craft yourself as a writer first my opinion when you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. So tell me about your crafting yourself as a writer, because you started saying yes to being a producer. You saw what directing was. You went through this acting boot camp you put yourself into, but you knew that script was good. You've always seemed to identify, you know, story first. In your own writing, how have you, how have you evolved? I mean, you've written these movies. You know, I mean, you've written a lot of them, right? You wrote St. Vincent, you wrote Hidden Figures. So tell me a little bit about your journey as a writer. 
Well, the thing about it is I came into it as a writer. I started as a writer. I, I um, As an eight-year-old, I wrote my father's newspaper in Brooklyn for eight years. So I grew up writing a column um, as a young kid. My first short story about my my pet dog that passed away won a, won a bit. I forget the name of the things. I was eight years old, so it's a gazillion decades ago. I won a New York Young Writers thing, and, and my, my story was read on the radio in New York. And so I've always been a writer and, and always wanted to be a writer and always knew I would write. And then in college, I have two degrees in architecture and psychology. And in psychology, all you did, all we did was write, 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 write. So when I came out to LA, I've, I've always been, I've been writing the entire time. But what's changed is you write so much, it's like a muscle. You write so much, you get stronger. And you get better, and you get, and you just know what's what works and what doesn't work, kind of, kind of instantly. And and like I have a dozen scripts I'll never show anyone, like hmm. I'll, I'll just never show anyone because they're not good enough, right? And will I go back and fix them? Maybe, maybe. But like the story moves on, life moves on, the times move on. Um, so you apply all the things you've learned over the years to the next thing, and you just keep honing it. But I would say the most important thing for a director, or filmmaker, or producer is to have the skill to write. And to, if you don't have the skill to write, work on it. Because even if you don't get there, it will always serve you. So that's something that's more, like you said, it's been an innate talent and skill, or it's been with you for a long time and, and like a muscle, you've developed it. Do you have anything you've read? Like you read the directing book. Do you have things that you've turned to as a writer that you thought were really helpful? Do you, do you have guidelines? Do you like these screenplay books that are out there? Do you dislike them? It sounds like you've, you write across formats. So I'm a believer that the core of what makes a good story is true across any style of writing. But of course, screenplay format, it's funny, you were an architect, <laughs> is kind of like a design for a building. It's not a finished product, right? So mm-hmm. what, what's your philosophy on, on that stuff? Like, you know, on, on the school of, of writing? Well, I think, you know, as, as a student myself, I try to take in everything I can because, you know, it's like, that, like what they say in Al-Anon, take what you like and leave the rest behind, right? Mm, yeah. So you start to craft this taste what you, and also an instinct of what you think is good and what you think is, is not good for you. So I've read them all, you know, Robert Mitchell and, and writing in restaurants, and I've read them all over the years. You know, what's the one with the cat? Yeah. Like, yeah. Screenplay, the Sid Field, or yeah, all that. Yeah, yeah, I've read them all, and ultimately, none of I, none of them were a thing that I read and went. I'll just say this: I haven't reread them, and I haven't highlighted them. <laughs> That's kind. Of, I kind of figured based on the way you've talked about it, but I like the the diplomacy of the Al-Anon. Uh, you also, when you said "be of service," I was sort of like, "Oh, interesting." I think I know where that some of that language comes from too. But I think that approach is a very peaceful, humble one, especially when you also talk about all those scripts you didn't finish, because I think knowing how to have humility and move forward is one of the hardest things. Like, how do you handle that? You know, you write a script, you spend a lot of time on it, and you feel like it's not good enough and you move on. Is is that hard to do for the ego? Confronting failure as it's perceived as failure is such a hard part of this industry, all the no's, et cetera. Yeah, it's sad. I'm not going to lie. It's a period of mourning. You spend six months writing something. You go, this is every word I have at the moment. This is all the words I have right now. And, and to th- take those words and put them in a draw and say they're just not up to snuff is sad. Yeah. Sad. And, you, and, you don't, and, 
And but what I'll say is like what I'll say is it's all for the greater good. I have used lines and scenes and thoughts from all those scripts all, all throughout my life. Like I just it, it just comes back to me and you use them and you're thankful for them. But you can't predict what's going to work and what's not going to work. And you can't predict what people are going to like and what people are not going to like. I mean, the Starling, if we're talking about the Starling, you know, the, I haven't read the reviews, but I've heard they're terrible. <laughs> I've heard they're terrible. And you go, you know, I think that's my best film. Like, and yeah. so what's the disconnect? It's like, I, I don't know the answer. Like, you, and, and the point is, you have to get past that. You have to get yeah. past who you're making movies for. We're not making movies for critics. I'm making movies for me and you. I'm yeah. people. And so I don't really care what others say because like if once you start playing that game, where's your own personal value that you're born with? It's gone. Yeah. It's gone. And now you're relying on if you take the good, you gotta take the bad. Mm. If you believe the good, you gotta believe the bad. I forget which playwright it was who killed himself after a crit- after a critic's review. Yeah. It's, really it's probably been more than one, sadly. Yeah. But- and then all his <laughs> plays became re- renowned. And here. <laughs> oh, the irony. Yeah. I think that, that you mentioned another thing, a philosophy that's really worth highlighting to me, which is that it's out of your control how people will respond. So if you get attached to it or caught up in it, then you are giving away control over anything. I, I mean, you have to embrace that you have no control over anything, right? Because it's just, you do your work and how it's received is not something you can determine or fixate on you know you have no idea i mean they told me don't make hidden figures they said this is never going to work and then they told me don't make saint vincent it's never going to work what 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 does anyone know what what do i know and that's where (laughs) that's where being humble comes in what do i what do i know you have to ask yourself what do i what do you know well you know no more than anybody else so what what core do you kind of turn to with with hidden figures because did you just say somewhere was there a voice that said I believe that this is worth it. I believe in this and I don't care if people are saying no. I trust in it. I'll find the yeah. person who says yes. Yeah, I was so compelled with the book proposal. It started as a book proposal. I was so compelled with the story of three women who who made it, who helped us get into space. Mm-hmm. And you know, my mom's a single mom and I come from that. And I'm like, I, I'm just so compelled by that. And And the fact that they were black is like, holy shit. And I'm like, during Jim Crow South, right? And I said, yeah. you know what? I don't care. I don't care. I don't care. I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna make this, I'm gonna do these women proud. I'm gonna hopefully present justice and and shine a light on them on them. And I don't really care if, you know, and had I thought about it, I said, Oh, how can I do that? I'm white. Like, right. <laughs> like if, I, if they even thought about that. And the point is like, this is the great thing about filmmaking. Colors, your color is your color, is yours. Right, and you could tell any story you want to tell because you have the same emotions and the same thoughts and the same feelings as every other human being on the planet, right? Mm-hmm. And now we're, we get caught up in that. Oh, only this person can tell that story, and only this person can tell that story. If you have a heartbeat, you can tell any story that you come across. If you're willing to open up, right, and be connected to your human experience that way, I think, which a lot of people have trouble with. Of course, yeah. Of course, a lot of people struggle with that. That's what that's what art is about, and that's what film is about, and that's what writing is about. It's about you know what Aristotle said. It's about catharsis, you know. Yeah. And it's about how drama can provide provides catharsis, and comedy provides catharsis, so that the audience can go through the pain that the character is going through without going through it. 
Mm. And in that, in that not going through it, they have a release, you know, an emotional release. And so they're able to feel. Yeah. I love that. I've, I've heard it described once and I always think of it as like, we get to take the human experience for a test drive <laughs> and yeah. it crashes and whatever. And it's, that's catharsis of, of yes. viewing it through art. We're running out of time. I can't thank you enough. It's been really fun talking to you. I wish we had more time, but I appreciate it. And good luck with your future projects. Thanks, George. Appreciate it. Good luck to you. Thanks so much for listening. Thank you to Theodore Melfi, Antoine Fuqua, and Jake Gyllenhaal for all being on the podcast. Please check out our YouTube channel. We have a lot of cool videos up there. Be sure to follow us on Twitter, like us on Facebook, check out our Instagram. Head over to nofilmschool.com for all these stories and more. And thank you so much for listening.